let's talk about kashmir Kashmir probably the most complex issue of our time in the subcontinent this includes Jammu and Ladakh that is the whole state of Jammu and Kashmir it has proved too tricky for any government to solve too tricky for Modi or Vajpayee or Nehru others i guess didn't even try to solve it Atal Bihari Vajpayee bet immense political capital on Kashmir hoping he could solve it and go down as a man who solved the unsolvable puzzle unfortunately that didn't happen abhi tak jo khel hota raha maut ka khoon ka wo band hona chahiye ladai se samasya hal nahi hogi hum fir dosti ka haath badhate hain magar haath dono taraf se badhna chahiye dono taraf se faisle hone chahiye ki hum mil kar rahenge is it even possible to solve kashmir or will this remain the unsolvable puzzle of india for generations to come In this podcast I speak with historians This Kashmir is a dispute it's a dispute between India and Pakistan and there is no legal case for azadi Journalists both from Kashmir and other parts of India primarily Delhi when you look at uh, kashmiri journalists when you look at kashmiri newspapers the kind of hatred they spread through the report it's it's shameful Uh, of course it has never been a part of india it's never felt a part of india i mean uh, anyone can see that anyone can feel that we we all of us grew up with that feeling right and then this this feeling that that people were our people were not their opinion was not sought but where it came to join between india and pakistan army personnel who have served in kashmir the public security act is the act which is used against some of these people for local disturbances so the stone throwers will get picked up and they will be jailed under psa who is it that is doing it it's not the army it's not the rr they're not involved at all we also speak with protesters and stone pelters who have off late hijacked the entire issue and most of them are in their teens jab hum patthar fekte hain to hum qabze ko patthar maarte hain jo hindustan ne yahan pe kiya hua hai हम हिंदुस्तान के फौजी को भी वो पत्थर नहीं मारते वो पत्थर हम हिंदुस्तान के उस पॉलिसी को मारते हैं जिसने हमारे इस मुल्क को मकबूजा रखा है कब्जे में रखा है हम इस पर पत्थर मारते हैं We try and give you a comprehensive view of the Kashmir conundrum from all perspectives. We approach it from the legal aspect is it legally possible to take back the special status the historical aspect why was it given a special status the sociological aspect how have the communities lived historically we speak with victims and the perceived aggressors we speak with members of the kashmiri pandit community that has been displaced bearing a brunt of this mess and of course the best legal minds who tell us what is the legal option in kashmir are there any good guys or bad guys or is that just about context so let's talk about kashmir This is a news laundry podcast and you're listening to Let's talk about Let's talk about is going to be a fortnightly podcast this will be for subscribers only this first episode is free so all of you can listen to it those of you who are 
but going forward it will be a subscribers only podcast kashmir will be broken up into two this is part 1 part 2 will come next fortnight and it'll be for subscribers only as i've said so do subscribe and pay to keep news free and independent before we get into the complete podcast on kashmir i think it's wise to go through a quick timeline of the history of kashmir ki hum wahan se yahan tak kahan kahan hokar pahunche The Kingdom of Jammu and Kashmir was created by the British in 1846 after the Sikh lost the first Anglo-Sikh war. Gulab Singh was made the Maharaja whose family ruled the state till monarchy was abolished and Karan Singh was made head of state. He was what was called the Sadre Riyasat. Ab wo position hai nahi waise but Sadre Riyasat bane wo and later he was governor for 2 years. He then joined the Congress party like pretty much everyone in the country. He is the son of the last ruler of Jammu and Kashmir Hari Singh. who had the title maharaja who ascended the throne of jammu and kashmir in 1925 incidentally the same year when the rss was born but it is not connected just a fact thrown in hari singh is also the one who signed the instrument of accession that was not his plan though post independence hari singh ka plan tha that bhai hum independent rahenge we will be an independent kingdom but mike tyson had once famously said everyone has a plan till they are punched in the face there was an attack from the tribesmen from pakistan accompanied by the pakistani military and marta kya na karta hari singh signed the instrument of accession as a precondition set by india ki bhai pehle tum sign karo fir hum apne troops bhejenge tumhe bachane ke liye that is how the battle of kashmir between pakistan and india started and the part of kashmir that is called pakistan administered kashmir but is shown as part of india in all maps from india has never really been under our control the rest has been controlled by india what is called Indian occupied Kashmir by Pakistanis so parts like Gilgit and Baluchistan is what Pakistan touts at Azad Kashmir but it's under Pak forces and has never been with India following the first Indo-Pak war over Kashmir the UN mediated and in 1948 led to ceasefire there is a UN resolution on Kashmir but more on that later in this podcast 1987 was a turning point in Kashmir a state assembly election was held where a conglomerate of local kashmiri parties under the banner muslim united front also contested the election they were very popular and they were very confident ji hum to jeet gaye result aaya to kya pata chala muf or the muslim united front won only 4 seats bjp won only 2 and the national conference and the congress won 66 this was seen as a completely rigged election with fairly good reason by most people and led to major outrage another turning point for kashmir was the year 1990 on the 19th of january often described as the night of exodus there were loudspeakers that blared threats and intimidatory messages towards india and kashmiri muslims there were thousands of kashmiri muslims on the street chanting death to india death to kafirs that's when the kashmiri pandit exodus really started according to government of india figures between january 1990 and august 2001 around 12000 civilians died of unnatural causes Three quarters of the hands of militants in Kashmir, the rest in crossfire. मतलब थोड़े हमारी forces ने, थोड़े militants ने किसी को पता नहीं. Security forces claim to have killed thirteen thousand four hundred militants. My God, thirteen and a half thousand militants while losing three thousand one hundred of their own men. An estimated two lakh Kashmiri pundits lived in Kashmir Valley. By the summer of nineteen ninety, at least half had left. That means about a lakh, if not more. While Ramchandra Guha says that by the end of the decade fewer than 4000 pandits were left in the valley in his book India after Gandhi but the Kashmiri Pandit Sangharsh Samiti KPSS an apex body of the Kashmiri pandits who did not migrate from the valley maintained that in 1998 
nearly 20,000 pandits were still living in the valley. However, today, authors like Colonel Tikku, who is a Kashmiri pandit himself, and people like uh, Mr. Ramchandra Guha say it's between 2,700 to 3,500. But whatever it is, it's in a couple of thousand, which is way fewer than 2 lakh. At present, there are 60,452 families registered as Kashmiri migrant families in the country. This is as per the Press Information Bureau. And finally, now recently, last year in 2016, triggered by the killing of local militant commander Burhan Wani, nearly 90 local youths have taken up arms from the South Kashmir district, the highest in a single year since 2013. Let's start off with the legal aspect. And who better to battle this out than two geniuses, Ram Jaitmalani and Subramanyam Swami? and the constitute uh, const- uh, constitution is has an extraordinary article called article 370 mr swami i must admit i find teetering on the loony side sometimes because of his over the top statements but then again all genius i think tips into the loony zone and no matter how offensive and bizarre many of his statements are when it comes to application of mind he can be lethal but ram jaitmalani is no pushover Well over 90 he could possibly demolish any lawyer who's brave enough to tangle with him legally. Now here is article 147 in the constitution of Jammu and Kashmir which is passed by the constituent assembly of Jammu and Kashmir and it came into force in 1957. So the genesis of the Kashmir problem is actually article 370. What is article 370? So I'm going to read out Article 370. This is what it states, as it is in the Constitution of India. Article 370, bracket one, notwithstanding anything in this Constitution, subsection A, the provisions of Article 238 shall not apply in relation to the state of Jammu and Kashmir. Subsection B, the power of Parliament to make laws for the said state shall be limited to sub subsection one, those matters in the Union list and the concurrent list which, in consultation with the government of the state, are declared. Basically, what that means is that Jammu and Kashmir, which includes Ladakh, has an autonomous identity. It has their own flag. It has their own constitution also, and it used to have its own PM called the Sadr Riyasat, which was then changed. The position was changed to the governor. And other than defence, finance, foreign affairs, and communication, uh, the central government has no role to play in the state. Some of you may say this is not unique to Jammu and Kashmir because Uttarakhand, Himachal Pradesh, and some other hill states too have laws that restrict people uh, from other parts of the country from buying property there or above a certain amount. Uh, however, the level of autonomy promised to Jammu and Kashmir when they actually became a part of India was way more than uh, has given to any other state, and it was unique. Now, many people say that Kashmir ke problem ki jard is Article 370. All we need to do is repeal Article 370, and the matter is closed. but can that even be done don't listen to me listen to dr swami and ram jaitmalani argue it out at the indian union debate forum which i happen to be moderating the constitute uh, const- uh, constitution is has an extraordinary article called article 370 which sti- which title is temporary provision for the state of jammu and kashmir and does not require the vote of parliament to abrogate it the amending power under article 368 specifies the method by which a constitutional article can be deleted but there's an exception made for article 370 because it was perceived as something which is going to last very short time 
Jammu Kashmir merged into India when the king signed the instrument of accession, like 500 other kings who signed the instrument of accession to merge into India. What Mr. Swami says here is correct, but it's not the entire truth. Kashmir was not like any other state. It was special. And uh, further on in the podcast, I'll explain why. Back to Swami and the legality of Article 370. Ambedkar, who was piloting all the bills, declined to move the bill or the, the, uh, the amendment. He said, I am not a traitor. I will not move this. So Sardar Patel was requested by Nehru that I have to suddenly go to London. He said for the Commonwealth meeting, but I know what he went for, and I won't state it here. And he said that, please do something about it. So Sardar Patel asked Gopal Swami Iyengar to move it. And after a huge uproarious debate, it was admitted, you know, repeatedly stated, it is temporary, it will go very soon. And a constituent assembly of Jammu and Kashmir was set up, and so Article 370 says the president by a notification can abolish Article 370 subject to the, uh, the concurrence of the Constituent Assembly of Jammu and Kashmir. Now there is no... Those are important assembly. words and you'll know why. Subject to the concurrence of the Constituent Assembly of Jammu and Kashmir. Now there is no constituent assembly of Jammu Kashmir because in 1954 it completed its work and having completed its work it said that Kashmir is an in, Jammu and Kashmir is an in, inalienable part of India and made no reference to article 370 in it. So consequently by the doctrine of necessity I would say that all that is required today for abolishing it is the presidential notification, which means a resolution of the cabinet of India, does not require... Ram Jaitmalani disagrees. I'm always amused by whatever my friend says. And, and I'm one of his admirers. But the trouble is that he is not a lawyer. And nor has he read the documents. <laughs> the constitution of Jammu and Kashmir was not framed by the Constituent Assembly of India. It was framed by a separate Constituent Assembly of Jammu and Kashmir, which did its work from 1951 to 1956 and completed it. And the Constitution of Jammu and Kashmir, in the last chapter, I'm sorry I can't give you the number of the article in the Jammu and Kashmir Constitution, it is that constituent assembly which has adopted Article 370 and it becomes now a matter totally beyond the power of Indian parliament or any executive authority in India to tinker with it. Because the constituent assembly of Jammu and Kashmir has accepted Article 370, this article should not go and this article serves a great purpose. It does not allow anybody to tinker with the kind of relationship that has been voluntarily established by the Jammu and Kashmir Constituent Assembly so that today India is not to be treated as some kind of an occupying power and I am surprised that the whole of the Indian government today, today or the last one which the recent government has displaced, both of them are so ignorant that they exactly don't know how to even talk to Pakistan about this problem. Thank you.
Of course, it can be debated whether the governments, this one and the last one, and all governments have been so ignorant that they don't know this, or they know this very well, and that's why once they make that promise uh, during the campaign, they never revisit it because they know very well that legally it will be very difficult for them to remove or repeal or abrogate Article 370. Uh, but let's go on. The debate between Mr. Jaitwalan and Mr. Subramanian Sami gets even more interesting. Holy shrines are in Kashmir. Is Kashmir, uh, therefore, it is because of a variety of compulsions that they point to. No country can be bound in compulsion when it comes to the identity of a nation. We believe in one, one, one uh, equality before law, and there's a constitutional principle that has to be established in Kashmir. When 500,000 Kashmiri pundits were driven out, saying, get out, you're not a Kashmiri, of people who have been through generations and were there even before those who, who claim that they are today the owners of Kashmir to abrogate it and if it can be done constitutionally, if it can be done constitutionally, we'll do it constitutionally. If they want it by some other means, well, we are ready for it because as in Hyderabad, when the Nizam became obstinate and the future of the country depended on uh, so just a second, was there an admission by Mr. Swami that legally India cannot abrogate Article 370 and so military force must be used? I think it was. Constituted Assembly of Jammu and Kashmir as a part of the constitution. Name the that. Bring the text here. Have you got a constitution of Jammu and Kashmir? Okay, we'll, Anybody let's take the next question. I think the audience will be able to check that in the last chapter. Kashmir then. Question? Uh, thank you. Let's have a bet. Okay. <laughs> Okay, the wager is on, but we'll just... If I lose dinner anywhere in India, if uh, he loses dinner anywhere in the world. <laughs> and let's make that a vast... You had to be in that auditorium to get the full maza of that exchange. Mr. Jaitfalani claimed that there is a clause in the constitution of Jammu and Kashmir which makes it impossible for the state to even adopt any amendment relating to JNK that is moved by the Parliament of India. Basically, just because the Parliament of India decides on a course of action that impacts JNK, it will not apply to the state. Mr. Swami disagreed and decided to place a bet. Sharth Lagiji. It was about a dinner or something. And I remember <laughs> Mr. Jaitwalani said, what a cheap bet. A copy of the constitution of Jammu and Kashmir was sent for. What impressed me was that Mr. Jaitwalani at the ripe old age of 93 or 94 had the clause and page number memorized. Uh, well, now it was time to check whether it was accurate. To say whatever he likes about law. Hmm? Which he doesn't understand anyhow. <laughs> now here is article... 147 in the constitution of Jammu and Kashmir which is passed by the constituent assembly of Jammu and Kashmir and it came into force in 1957 it talks of the power of amendment of the constitution of Jammu and Kashmir in 147 but it adds a proviso provided further that no bill or amendment seeking to make any change in the following will ever be moved that the provisions of the constitution of India as applicable in relation to the state. 370 is a provision in the constitution of India applicable to the state of Jammu and Kashmir that the constituent assembly and parliament of Jammu and Kashmir will not even move an amendment ever. 
Thank you. I think Dr. Swami has something to say. Yeah, you could just take the mic. You don't have to get up. Just, yeah, Miss. I will, I will, even law students will agree. And they are already agree. So the bet was won by Ram Jaitmalani, which made Mr. Swami shift the debate to, if not legally, we should take over militarily. It must be clarified that since there is no constituent assembly of JNK, then what? Well, then what happens is, it is open to interpretation by a lawyer. One can say that because the constituent assembly that actually wrote the constitution of, of Jammu and Kashmir doesn't exist, it was dissolved, you have to reconvene a constituent assembly and then they have to adopt any resolution that the Indian parliament passes. Other people can uh, say that no, the assembly of the state, the legislative assembly as it exists now, is equivalent to a constituent assembly. Therefore, that assembly has to accept or adopt any article or any amendment that Indian parliament passes. Now you tell me, in today's day and age, can any party, whether it's BJP or Mufti Muhammad Saeed or Mehbooba Mufti's party or Omar Abdullah's, can anyone in an election there saying that we will adopt the amendment to Article 370 by the Indian Parliament? So it's pretty much impossible. So, you know, that that's a stalemate. The question to be asked is, why did India agree to grant JNK such a special status? Whereas nobody else in the country, not Punjab, not Hyderabad, not any of the other principalities that came, were given that special status. I speak with historian Ramchandra Guha to get more on this. You know, I think uh, uh, Kashmir is unique and distinctive among the 500 odd princely states who joined India. One, of course, is that it is only one of the states that bordered both India and Pakistan. So it could have joined either dominion. Lord Mountbatten, who was the Viceroy, went to Kashmir, told the Maharaja Hari Singh that he should join either dominion, uh, preferably before 15th August. Many other states, since we said, joined either dominion. But Hari Singh prevaricated partly because he, uh, he had fantasies of independence. Hmm. Whereupon, of course, the Pakistani army sent uh, raiders, irregular raiders in, and there was a great deal of turmoil and conflict, and then the Indian troops went there and acceded to India. So the circumstances were special. And since the circumstances were special, also under the original agreement, only defense, foreign affairs, and uh, communication was part of the Union of India. And uh, that was the understanding from 47 right up to 53. Even later, uh, there was a sense through Article 370 that Kashmir would have a special status. So this status so, that you're talking about, sorry, to cut in, in 1953, the terms of understanding was that it is just those three issues. That's communication, defense, and foreign affairs that will be with India. I mean, they went back and forth. I mean, there was, there was a Delhi agreement which the Nehru was not unhappy about and uh, which had only those three things and the Sheikh Abdullah pressed it. So there was tension between Kashmiri politicians who wanted greater autonomy and Delhi politicians who wanted greater control right from the time of Jawaharlal Nehru. Right. But, uh, so that, and that tension is persisted to the present. But the fact remains that Articles 370 guarantees them a special status. Right. And the fact remains that this was the only state that could have joined either India or Pakistan because of its uh, geographical location. It chose to join us, admittedly, under duress. And we must respect that. I think you cannot go back, at least on Article 370. The tactics that Sarar Patel used with, so for example, the Nizam of Hyderabad, you know, either you join us or I have an army that will take you on. Or, you yes. know, even, you know, Patiala, who could not really try to withstand Indian pressure. Kashmir had that that leverage because they bordered Pakistan. So we couldn't really exactly. bully them like, like India bullied the rest. I mean, let's be honest, you know, Sardar Patel said... Well, yeah, I mean, we bullied the rest, but I think, let's, let's also be 
put some perspective into it. I mean, the idea of our independent Hyderabad was equally fantastical as the idea of our independent Kashmir. No one should romanticize the Nizam. He was a reactionary feudal ruler. There was some 2 or 3% literacy under his regime. So I think no one in Hyderabad or in the Aswai state of Hyderabad should feel nostalgic about the Nizam Hyderabad. But having said that, and most of the princely states were cesspools of reaction and feudalism and uh, a great distance between, uh, you know, rich, uh, luxury worshipping, worshipping Maharajas and then dispossessed and disenfranchised subject, uh, you know, subject population. But having said all that, Kashmir is special. And right. I think the, uh, the, the, the pressure from Delhi, from Nehru's day, to, to whittle down the terms of autonomy, I think is part of the root of the Kashmir problem. I see. So you think uh, the having a special constitution for Kashmir was, it had to be done. That was the only way that we could actually keep yes, it as part yes, of India. Yes, at, at successive Indian regimes, mostly Congress, because the Congress has been in power for longest, but also BJP afterwards, has whittled down the autonomy. You know, they have tried to, uh, Sheikh Abdullah was jailed in his place, a pliant uh, chief minister, Bakshi Gulam Mohammed, was put in, then elections were rigged. You know, and all kinds of other undermining of the terms of autonomy uh, have taken place. But, and I think it's the past time we recognize that, you know, that and if India has to have a moral, robust and moral case on Kashmir, the value of Kashmir, it has to safeguard and indeed deepen the autonomy that was promised to it when it acceded to India. Indeed, if India is to have any moral or ethical claim on Kashmir, we would have to honour any treaty signed earlier during the accession. Many say that it was a mistake by Jawaharlal Nehru and we should not honour it. You know, while that may be rhetorically appealing during a campaign or during an election, any government knows, no matter who, that is not a practical option. Just because you disagree with an earlier government, you can't dishonour a treaty. Countries have tried to do this by dishonouring a debt that an earlier government had taken and they have paid heavily for it. If you want to be taken seriously as a country, because there are other international negotiations that also happen, then you cannot default on treaties. And also, whether that was a mistake or not at the time is a different debate. Because was there any other way of getting Kashmir as part of India uh, at a time when it was so difficult to get it together? But, you know, this whole constant thing of, you know, the military option, whether it is from the people like Mr. Swami or people from what what they call Azad Kashmir who say they can take over militarily, you know... Uh, when you actually want to exercise that option, one should keep a couple of things in mind. And I think that's best illustrated by this story that I'm going to tell you. It's actually a poem. I'll just paraphrase it. It's about this group of peasants who land up at this huge palace or a haveli of a guy um, who owns it. And he they say that we're going to drag you and your family out and we're taking over your property. So that guy says, you can't take over my property. Uh, I own it. So he says, why do you own it? He says, well, because I have the papers, you see. These are the uh, inheritance papers. And this is my property. He says, how do you get those papers? He says, well, my father willed it to me. He says, how did your father get it? He says, well, his father willed it to him. He says, how did his father get it? He says, well, that was my grandfather. He willed it to my... my that was my great-grandfather. He willed it to my grandfather. So he says, how did he get it? So he tells the peasants, well, he fought a battle for it. So the peasants say, okay, then we'll fight you for it. So you see, it's a very tricky one. If you say that just because you won something in battle five generations ago, someone can say in this generation, well, then we'll fight another battle and we'll take it back. Uh, on the other hand, the Indian military can also say, you think you're strong enough? Okay, take us on. And realistically speaking, if the Indian military's full might was to 
go into Kashmir. There is no chance in hell anyone will even survive. So the military option is a more, uh, would I say, uncivilized option because as generations move forward, we have more sophisticated means of resolving clashes. The sophisticated means can be sharp minds like Jaitam Malani and Swami going at each other, finding loopholes in law, international diplomacy, uh, you know, negotiations, ek hat le, ek hat de. But this whole, we'll fight you for it, is a very tricky logic. Because it can be used by either side uh, in very destructive ways. Now let's speak with some really young rebels who think that they can take over by violence uh, from the streets of Kashmir, who you know as stone pelters. So, when we were born in the 90s, so we were born in the shadow of guns. And I'd just like to tell you why the audio of the stone pelters sounds a little garbled and strange is because they spoke to our team on the condition that uh, we would not reveal their identity because then they get into really deep shit with the police uh, and they're really bashed up and, and uh, they go through a very hard time. It's to protect their identities. When we were school, my culture, my tradition was taken away from me. I was put into schools, man. They told me that if you spoke in Kashmir, we'll find you five bucks. You know, five bucks was a lot for me. But this sentiment is not limited to just stone pelters. It is true for most of the valley. Of course, it has never been a part of India. It's never felt a part of India. I mean, anyone can see that. Anyone can feel that. We, we, all of us grew up with that feeling, right? Of that feeling of not being a part of, you know, that country that uh, we are, we are forcefully called uh, citizens of and then killed, of course. Like for me, other than being a journalist, as a common Kashmiri person, what I have seen and what in the environment I have grown up with, I don't think there's any other choice than to identify with Azadi because that's what, because that's how your life has been. You do want to get out of the things that your life has been through. Like you don't want to see what has happened to you, to the generations that are coming up. Yahan to, yahan to 
यहाँ के हुकुमरान भी यहाँ के आवाम के साथ जुल्म करते हैं यहाँ जो आवाज़ होता है सच्ची आवाज़ होता है वो दबाते हैं ना हमको पाकिस्तान चाहिए ना हमको हिंदुस्तान चाहिए हमको आज़ादी दे दो खुल के जो यहाँ जो भी यहाँ आएगा वीज़ा के साथ आना चाहिए Well, my name is Rahul Pandita. I'm a Delhi-based journalist. Um, I'm the author of uh, a couple of books. My recent book was a book called uh, "Our Moon Has Blood Clots," which is a part memoir, part reportage about uh, growing up in Kashmir in the turbulent 80s, uh, about the exodus of Kashmiri pundits. For many, many years, we have uh, heard this narrative coming from uh, Kashmir Valley, from journalists, from local journalists, about uh, uh, how. the national press treats kashmir uh, you know as a, as a story and how underreported or misreported kashmir often is um it really amuses me sometimes abhinandan because uh, when you look at uh, kashmiri journalists when you look at kashmiri newspapers when you look at kashmiri media the, the kind of uh, the kind of venom they spew on on their pages on their local pages i'm talking uh, you know i'm not hesitant to take a couple of names i am specifically pointing towards um kashmir's two main uh, english daily newspapers the greater kashmir and um the the rising kashmir um the kind of hatred uh they spread through the reports towards india uh, it, it's it's shameful it's shameful you know their their reportage their narrative for example on the circumstances that led to the exodus of kashmiri pandits Rahul Pandita has written this book called Our Moon Has Blood Clots about his experiences as a Kashmiri pandit as a refugee in Jammu and about his moving uh, from his home. I have read the book. It is an extremely touching book. It's it's really sad. His book was not very well received by the local Kashmiri media unsurprisingly. But you know you we also need to look at the look at the other side. Um I I I keep on saying this if and i think mr gilani agrees with me uh, even if the government of india was to pave the roads of kashmir with gold tomorrow will this so called separatism go away it will not go away hmm. the simple fact is there is a very big significant number of population in kashmir which does not identify with india it identifies with pakistan it identifies with azadi azadi is often used as a euphemism for pakistan and that was the case in, when you were a child growing up there or is that a new occurrence no not a new occurrence it was there because it was always there, there. Was, it you know we did not hear on we did hear it on a day to day basis but the only difference between 99 and pre 99 was the armed incidents right. like i keep like i keep on saying you know we live like any other minority lives anywhere else uh, in india or anywhere else. you know you act like a submarine you keep your head low things happen and things do happen so your childhood was spent is trying to keep a low profile is it some mosque is uh, there some problem uh, in jerusalem uh, the houses of kashmiri pandit uh, are pelted you know stones are pelted at their houses in 1984 uh, there is operation blue star which is supposedly a fight between the indian state led by mrs indira gandhi and sikh extremists in Hmm. uh golden temple amritsar hmm. um and some miscreants go and throw an idol of uh, lord hanuman in the river jhelum um uh, there is independence day india's independence day if there is no blackout if the kashmiri pandit does not switch off his light then his window panes are broken oh so if this was a match between india and pakistan so even when you were a child but... khasta, if india wins 
then your window plans are open. So it was never ending for us. But so the only difference, like I said, was the... It wasn't an armed militancy. So what you're saying yeah. is that prejudice was there, you had to live with your head low Absolutely. because it's always been like that. Absolutely. It's not a new occurrence. Absolutely. So I said that there's a lot of debate going around the whole Kashmiri Pandit uh, migration thing, you know, where people say, they say a lot of Pandits were killed, uh, whereas official records maintain that only 209 Pandits were killed. And most of them uh, belong to prominent political parties or political, um, you know, positions. That's SR Batul, a young human rights activist from Jammu and Kashmir. She has worked extensively in uh, trying to expose the human rights violations of the Indian Armed Forces. She is part of a team that is in court against the Armed Forces for an alleged mass rape that they committed. Uh, Army excesses are not a surprise. Yes, they happened. And SR tries to hold them culpable for it. Yeah, uh, I'm a professional social worker based in uh, Srinagar. And I'm also uh, working uh, on documenting human rights with Jammu Kashmir Coalition of Civil Society. And uh, I also happen to be the co-author of the book, uh, Do You Remember Kunan Poshpura? Uh, This book documents the 1991 mass rape case that happened in uh, the twin villages of Kunan and Poshpura by the fourth Rajputana rifles of the Indian Army. So what happened was that it, it was very unfortunate. Uh, none of the Kashmiri Muslims would ever want that uh, the Kashmiri Pandit should have left. And all of us, yes, of course, you know, feel really bad about it. But the thing is that it's been, they, they did leave, uh, you know, of their own. There were some that stayed behind. There are minority communities in Kashmir, uh, including Pandits and Sikhs, that feel absolutely safe there. So the time, the, the only thing that is that this has done is that it's given a communal color. It's been used to give a communal color to the movement, which is not true. Because I mean, you must have heard stories coming out of, uh, from Kashmir, where you know, pundits and Muslims live exactly like brothers, like they've always been living. Well, honestly, I haven't come across any story like that. But uh, just one last question: Do you think the denial of the armed forces atrocities? in Kashmir mm-hmm. is equivalent to the denial of the atrocities of the local population against the Kashmiri Pandits? Or you think one one narrative is more uh, accurate no, than the that, other? That is a very that is a very problematic statement though. Hmm. Because uh, there have been no, uh, you know, there are no official documents, no records, no factual records to say that the atrocities, there were atrocities committed by the local population. That is, see, that is the whole problematic narrative that's been created. Who is saying this? Who is saying that? And how can you compare? Like, do you mean to say that the local population actually drove uh, the Kashmiri Pandits out of their homes? If that were the case, and since you did say that you did not come, you have not come across in many stories uh, where these, uh, you know, where these, um, this kind of uh, mutual coexistence and respectful coexistence is portrayed, maybe you should actually look up these stories where pundits actually say, those who, have, those who are left behind, say that they have, you know, they've always felt safe. They did not want to leave when others left. Before any of you jump to judge SR for denying the Kashmiri pundit trauma, Do remember, there would probably be an entire generation or maybe two or three generations who have grown up on ZTV and Times Now coverage who would deny any wrongdoing by the Indian state. That the army has never done anything wrong. India has never done anything wrong. The narrative they have been fed is that 
वहाँ तो सब टेररिस्ट हैं सब अनग्रेटफुल हैं सब निकम्मे हैं काम वाम करना नहीं चाहते दे जस्ट कीप स्टोन पेल्टिंग दे हैव नो रीजन टू क्रिप वी गिव दैम सो मच दे वुड बी अनवेयर ऑफ द एश्योरेंस गिवन टू द कश्मीरी पीपल डाउन द एजेस अनवेयर ऑफ द रिक्ड इलेक्शन अनवेयर ऑफ कश्मीरी लीडर्स बींग जेल्ड फॉर डिमांडिंग वॉट वॉज प्रॉमिस टू दैम एंड अनवेयर दैट दे हैव बिन मिलिट्री एक्सेस इंक्लूडिंग रेप एंड मर्डर इन कॉन्फ्लिक्टेड जोन इन द वैली विच इज़ वाई फेयर एंड इंडिपेंडेंट न्यूज सोर्सेज आर इंपॉर्टेंट फॉर अ नेशन बिकॉज एंटायर जनरेशन फॉर्म्स एर ओपिनियन assuming that is fact what they've read however in the valley the youngsters believe a different reality to those who have been exposed in delhi and they have been fed a different history to those of us who have grown up in delhi the history that has been fed to them denies the kashmiri pandit exodus now back to rahul pandita on how the local kashmiri newspapers reacted to his book on the kashmiri pandit experience calling kashmiri pandits uh, dirty insects Uh, using abuses against me, calling me a right-wing reporter, RSS narrative in the newspaper. Blah blah blah. You know the 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 usual. This, this is in the newspaper. In the newspaper, absolutely. I see. Absolutely. How do so, you resolve this? You have many friends there, as is clear in your book. You know, even now you go back and you spend time and have a drink every now and then. Uh, do you? Is there tension as a journalist, as a friend, as a Kashmiri, who cannot live there anymore? And there is, there is. You know, before my book came out, we could uh, still re- reconcile with the fact. But after my book has uh, come out, barring a, a couple of journalists who remain close to me, there is this uh, um, very inconvenient, uh, very uncomfortable silence. You know, while doing this podcast, I spoke to several people. Some of those have been featured in this. Uh, some of them have not been featured, but. pretty much every kashmiri i speak with and by kashmiri i mean kashmiri muslim they do identify with the azadi uh, slogan uh, but not many of them have an answer to what would become of kashmiri pandits if azadi is granted you know with people like uh, buranwani uh, wanting to establish a caliphate at the same time how the indian union and the army has dealt with kashmir has created a legitimate grouse in the hearts of the local population the entire 80s and 90s was a very black patch um on kashmir uh, actually on india on what the indian army did to kashmir uh, and we will discuss that in the second half of this podcast but for now i speak with riyaz wani he's an accomplished journalist who is a veteran of many years uh, and also an award, has won the ramnath goenka award uh, and he is a very reasonable and credible kashmiri voice i'm riyaz wani Uh, I have been a journalist for the past two decades. I have worked with uh, local newspapers. I have been with Indian Express for uh, for a decade, for less than a decade, and then uh, I am now working for Tehelka for the past uh, six years. Uh, I have got Ramnath Goenka Award uh, for what for, story? For covering for the for reporting on Kashmir. Kashmir has had a history. You know the whole Article Three Seventy. Um, the terms under which it became part of the indian union um and and there's a lot of history there that's that's fine but f- 60s 70s 80s you know it was relatively calm what happened in the 80s that kashmir blew up what was the change i mean can can you identify you must have been a teenager back then yes i, I i'll tell you one thing because <clears throat> i have spent almost all my life in valley I have seen the sentiment always there. Even it ran through my family also because my father told me about this. Hmm. 
that wrongs that have been done to us uh, by new delhi you know, that kind of narrative and then this this feeling that that people were our people were not their opinion was not sought but when it came to join between india and pakistan they were not taken into consideration it was kind of done over their heads i see that would they that people had no agency so so the where should where they should go so the resentment was there and then what happened in the 80s that it became militant that you know we saw ak47s being fired and you know exactly. the the pandits having to flee the valley when did it become this pandit versus islamic kind of I mean, how did that happen force emerged in the in the form of political force in the form of and uh, this muslim united front hmm. it was an amalgam of some religious uh, and political parties uh, in the in the 1980 and there was whole hearted participation in the election because they people saw that somebody uh, they could they, they identified with who okay. spoke kind of their language people they is who kind of their politics reflected the aspirations and grievances of the people but it was they, based on religion it was not it was not there were some religious parties but it was not based on religion okay it was not based on religion it was because there were some uh, parties which which were not about religion for example this Sajjad Lonu's father, Gani Lonu's People's Conference. Hmm. It was a influential, major political party in Valley that time. I see. So, also, so this was a was this was a conglomerate of parties. Some were religious, but some were not religious. Some were not religious. Exactly, okay. exactly. Some were not religious. So, wh- what happened? That there was a whole-hearted participation in that in that election, and this uh, party, MUFC, would kind of uh, that they they seem to de- sweep the sweep the election. it almost ended because everywhere there was this wave in in their favor hmm. and then when the uh, election of the results were announced they ended up winning just four four seats so it and was all, all, all others went to an, an national conference so it was seen was, as a completely rigged election and that is when matlab democracy se vishwas uth gaya that's what you're saying that was a turning point that was a turning point and then what happened because you know then afghan jihad was drawing to an end uh ussr was leaving about to leave afghanistan so and it was a, it was still a uh, cold the world of the cold war to matlab wahan ke jo bache khuche mujahideen the wo yahan par aa gaye bilkul i'm colonel vivek chadda i joined the army in june 1989 i joined the regiment of maratha light infantry and uh, I've had experience in CI areas to include Sri Lanka, uh, some of the states of the northeast. CI being uh, counterinsurgency areas uh, and uh, JNK as well. How old were you at the time? I was around 27, 28. This is the 90s. Yes. Early 90s. Yes. Yes. You are now a, uh, you work with a think tank, a strategic think tank. Yes, I'm uh, a research fellow with the Institute for Defence Studies and Analysis. Uh, this is a. a probably the largest think tank in the country working on strategic issues security issues international relations established in 1964 how do you see today's action the stone pelters and the what they call spontaneous you know outrage as opposed to what you saw when you were serving in the uniform with these ak47 mastgul and chirarishri these guys coming with ak47s firing how is it different what has changed is i think the element of uh, terrorism uh, to a very large extent has come under control 
uh, 1994 95 was the time when uh, there was a huge influx of the foreign terrorists and uh, this happened because uh, the local movement uh, it was realized in pakistan that it hasn't really been able to gain the kind of roots that they had planned for and secondly they were not very comfortable with the the call for azadi of the jklf uh, because the primary motive was of kashmir uh, talking of joining with pakistan, uh, pakistan uh, which is how the, the hizbul mujahideen was propped up for those of you who are born in the 80s and 90s a kashmir holiday is probably an unlikely family memory but for my generation a kashmiri hol- a kashmir holiday was fairly normal until the second half of the 80s that is many factors led to the militant explosion of the 80s when the valley was no longer safe i mean you couldn't go there the ho- the zamana of hum gulmarg ja rahe hain pehlgam ja rahe hain those were over the end of the khalistan movement and the end of the russian occupation of afghanistan contributed as well because many of the out of job professional fighters needed a new battle and kashmir gave them that here's journalist riyaz wani again kashmir has been worse in the 90s but mm-hmm. that was a different kind of uh, that was a qualitatively different kind of situation Hmm. uh now it is it is different it's not militant in nature it's kind of it's on the streets it's about protests uh, it's about stone throwing this was not so in the early 90s it was early 90s it was about it was also about processions but it was not about stone throws it was uh, ak47 was also about militancy then more and more about militants so are you saying the amount of militancy has gone down it has drastically gone down militancy is now there are around 150 odd militants in kashmir okay. as against 90s when there were around 20000 of them roaming the valley the number of militants varies depending on who you speak with but that there has been a dramatic drop is beyond doubt during the 80s and 90s it was quite normal for people roaming the streets you know brandishing automatic weapons however that you do not see today and in a good week or a good month you can actually even go to kashmir for a for a holiday uh, kashmir was the story that could get a journalist instant stardom back in the 80s here's colonel chadda again on pakistan's involvement and when even hizbul mujahideen uh, the limitations of the group were exposed during the course of the encounters uh, with the with the security forces i think it became very evident to them that they had to inject an artificial kind of uh, element into this uh, movement and which was in the form of the foreign terrorists so you had uh, groups the names could vary but essentially groups which were controlled by the isi and this was also partly because afghanistan action with russia had gone yes, so they were they, out of work the the, the experiment had already been successfully conducted for uh, over 10 years in afghanistan and not only that we must also remember that prior to kashmir uh, they had also uh, with reasonable success been able to inject violence in punjab you know we tend to at times uh, forget the connection that is there between what happens in punjab and what subsequently happened in uh, in kashmir so they had attempted that in in punjab as well so they had a degree of excellence if i may call it so uh, in using terrorism as an element of proxy war so it starts in afghanistan it gets honed further in punjab and then of course kashmir is the prime example so the 80s and 90s the militancy was primarily because of pakistan and isi pushing militants into kashmir it wasn't so much local kashmiri boys the, the local uh, kashmiri element was there but over a period of time the local element kept receding and the foreign element became the principal 
focus of the the uh, movement how did the locals react to that uh, initially there was a sense of euphoria because it was felt that amongst some of them at least the, the supporters i would say they felt that you know uh, here are people who are genuinely supportive of us and they've come all the way from various parts of the world to fight this uh, so called jihad for us but i think uh, it was very very soon it was realized that one in terms of pakistan's intent and two in terms of the nature of the foreign terrorist who was coming that neither of them were actually bothered about kashmir hmm pakistan for them the aim the, the strategic aim was very clear and that was the interest of pakistan kashmiris were an instrument for that as far as the foreign terrorists were concerned uh, they had no uh, sympathy uh, they, they uh, a cultural context for that matter that was completely different so when you can't speak to the people who are there in the language that they understand you don't follow the same cultural context and they were afghans uzbeks were, were mostly afghans mostly afghans there were some others also who had come but it was either the the pakistanis or the afghans who who came in and uh, there were any number of cases of misbehavior ill treatment killing of locals and i think very soon that euphoria receded and it was realized that you know these are not the kind of people who can ever get us what we want and that stage was i guess the time when people started providing information the flow of information became much better and so it was easier for you to tackle these foreigners after yes, a while because it you would was. get local help to take them on yes genuine local help genuine local help there were any number of people who uh, were providing information and um, i think before some of these agitations happened uh, which have resulted in in negatively impacting the intelligence grid even till uh, some time back the intelligence grid was exceptional i think this is something which is not really realized that ultimately how is it that you've been able to bring down the number of terrorists from a couple of thousands to just a couple of hundred 100 yeah what we found when our team traveled at the peak of the stone pelting incidents was that most stone pelters were youngsters in their teens they made isis flags they made pakistani flags even though they claimed not to believe in either of those ideologies they said hum isliye karte hain kyunki we know this really annoys the indian forces and our job is to annoy the indian forces we don't believe in the isis ideology stone pelt ke dauran mein mera hi mochna koi na koi marna chahiye isme aur kya koi na koi mara kyunki meri ek patthar se matlab azadi aayegi जब हम भी होते हैं जख्मी तो ये क्यों ना हो फोर्सेस भी होनी चाहिए जख्मी जब हम हो रहे हैं ये क्यों नहीं होंगे मैं अपनी बात कहूंगा मेरी पढ़ाई वो भी खत्म हो गई कश्मीर डिस्प्यूट की वजह से मैं घर जाता हूं मेरे बाप को रोज फोन आते भाई पुलिस स्टेशन आ जाए वहां आ जाए यहां आ जाए हम अगर किसी चीज के लिए अप्लाई करें पासपोर्ट्स हमें पासपोर्ट्स भी नहीं दिए जा रहे क्योंकि हम टेररिस्ट हैं हम टेररिस्ट क्यों हैं टेररिस्ट इसलिए क्योंकि हम अपना हक मांग रहे हैं this is uh, the, the the huge majority of this are the locals uh, now there have been cases uh, individual cases i would say wherein you have uh, terrorists who have sneaked into these groups and there have been some cases of hurling of grenades from within the groups of firing taking place from within the groups so but those have been a few cases that have taken place and that have actually led to casualties of uh, the police and the the central police forces uh, but primarily it is the locals the local kashmiri newspapers when they report on something yes. there seems to be a sense of uh they take a more sympathetic line to the protesters whereas okay. when delhi reports it it doesn't take a sympathetic line to the protesters there seems to be a more sympathetic line towards either security forces or that the protesters are outlaws who have to be dealt with as criminals exactly. how do you resolve this i'm talking about yes, that 
there are a kind of you, you know there are three three narratives in Kashmir which operate simultaneously. One is this Pakistani narrative, and then there is this national narrative, New Delhi narrative on Kashmir. Then there is this intrinsic Kashmiri narrative, that our narrative. What is wrong with this place? So these three narratives operate almost simultaneously here, every day, day on day basis. What is the Pakistani narrative? The, uh, Indian narrative, so I know, bhai, sub anti-national, yes. the Times Now type of narrative. Then there is a Kashmiri narrative that is more yes. sympathetic to the Azadi kind of no, line Kashmiri of. Kashmiri narrative is sympathetic to the Azadi. And what what is the Pakistani narrative, and where does that appear? Does that appear locally also in Kashmir? Pakistani narrative, yes, it comes through Pakistani TV channel, and because they 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 been here through the local cable, and to, but. Also, the separate among the separatist groups, uh, the dominant number of uh, separatist uh, conglomerates uh, represent Pakistani viewpoint on Kashmir because they they actually stand for plebiscite. Uh, they want um, that, that, that it should be settled between India and Pakistan. You know, if someone believes in the concept of Azadi, it's it's absolutely uh, it's absolutely all right. But the only thing you know, the question then I go on to ask is what is your blueprint for Azadi? Is it a, is, what is Kashmir going to be? Is it going to be secular Kashmir? Um, absolutely not. Because if you just go to YouTube and listen to some of the speeches of uh, Mr. Sayyid Ali Shah Gilani, he is very clear about it and you must, we must respect him for that. He it's says it. very mm. clearly and I'm just quoting him, Kashmir mein jamhuriyat nahi chalegi, Kashmir mein nationalism nahi chalega, Kashmir mein subayat nahi chalegi, which is provincialism. Hmm. Kashmir mein democracy nahi chalegi. Kashmir, Islam ki nisbat se Pakistan hai, hum Pakistani hai, Pakistan hamara hai. Right. It's as simple as that. Pakistan hamara hai to theek hai, but so far, much of Kashmir hamara hai, which means India ka hai. But how long is the situation sustainable? How do people expressing such sentiments like Mr. Gilani continue to thrive in Kashmir? Is it a victory of Pakistani propaganda and is Indian propaganda so weak? Or is it a failure of the Indian state and of the armed forces? That's it for part one of Let's Talk About Kashmir. We will be back with part two in 14 days since Let's Talk About is a fortnightly podcast. In part two, we will go a little deeper into the army excesses, the infamous Shopia case of alleged rape and murder of two Kashmiri girls and the Konan Poshpura case where there are allegations of Indian military personnel being part of a mass rape and torture of anything from 20 to 50 women from Konan and Poshpura villages, depending on who you speak with. How do these allegations end and how does that impact the Kashmir issue? And is justice done in such cases? Also, what do the people we have spoken to think of how this issue will be resolved, if at all? Also, in part two, we go into the military-police relationship. Is it friendly? Is it suspicious? Is it conducive at all? And is the pellet gun the only option or is it overkill? Thanks for listening to Let's Talk About. Do subscribe to News Laundry because this podcast from the next episode is only available to subscribers. Such projects take a lot of time and a lot of resources and it is only through your subscriptions that we can make them better and bigger because we don't take advertisements. So you have to support us if you want to listen to more such stuff because when the public pays, the public is served and when advertisers pay, advertisers are served. Also, if you have any suggestions of what subjects you'd like us to go into in this podcast series, because we do take a detailed look at subjects, do write in to contact at newslaundry.com. 
With your suggestions, or you can write to me directly at abhinandan.sekri at gmail.com. So, see you next time. Until then, peace. All the News Laundry podcasts are available on Stitcher, iTunes, and any other podcast platform. Please subscribe to News Laundry. Help us keep news independent. To catch all our podcasts on news, pop culture, current affairs, and sport, visit newslaundry.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. 